This is the Nouvelle Nouvelle podcast, the new news and all things middling old, brought to you by the Ohio State University Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies, CMRS. I'm your host, Steve Barker, PhD candidate in Old English. Every two weeks, I sit down with a visiting lecturer or an OSU faculty or grad student to talk about their work and working lives, covering everything from the much-disputed decline and fall of the Roman Empire in late antiquity to the early modernity of the printing press, bustling international trade, and Renaissance humanism. Our scholars discuss inter alia, Beowulf, Chaucer and Shakespeare, Da Vinci and Michelangelo, the mystics and martyrs of the medieval church, nuns, monks and scholars, warriors and queens, the birth of the university, science and alchemy, fairies and the fantastic, and the ever-rising middle class with all its familiar exuberance and anxiety. Welcome to Nouvelle Nouvelle. My guest today is Frank Colson, professor of classics at Ohio State. He specializes in paleography, old writing, particularly the writing found in ancient, medieval, and Renaissance manuscripts, Roman capitals, unseals, minuscules, Carolingian, Gothic, and the like. He is director of paleography at the Ohio State Center for Epigraphical and Paleographical Studies, and he convenes the annual Text and Context Conference here. And the next conference is November 1st, and the Virginia Brown Memorial Lecture this year is being delivered by uh, Jan Jolkowski, the general editor of the Dumberton Oaks series. Uh, of medieval literature. He is also a scholar of the reception of Ovid, as well as the medieval and Renaissance reception of the classics more generally, and he has directed many successful doctoral theses in the field. He has just completed editing the Oxford Handbook of Latin Paleography, a wide-ranging project which brings together the most up-to-date research in the field and which will be published shortly. Uh, Welcome, Frank. Thank you. So I said published soon. Uh, When is it coming out? Uh, well, it's just going into production. Okay. Um, we had a little problems getting the final contract signed, but uh-huh. I think they're all done now. So it should be going into production. We're hoping it'll be out next year. It's been a rather long process. Yes. So uh, that was one of my questions. What's involved in editing uh, something like this? Well, I suppose part of the problem to begin with is conceptualizing mm-hmm. how you're going to do it, how you want to organize it, uh, how you want to uh, emphasize certain aspects of the material. Um, I must say that our idea at the beginning was that it would emphasize particularly paleography mm-hmm. uh, and handwriting, so that would be the focus of it. Uh, but there are also two other sections that have turned out to be fairly developed, one in codicology mm-hmm. and uh, the other that I sort of call the um, – placement of the manuscript, the uh, way in which certain um, genres and types and texts were transmitted in the Middle Ages. So it's a little bit like um, uh, what uh, people recently have tried to do, looking more sort of at the archaeology of the book, as opposed to just focusing on paleography. Um, But the process process has really taken about six or seven years, I suppose, from Mm -hmm. beginning to end. So what, yeah, so you said, you mentioned codicology and the archaeology of the book. Um, what else is in it? And maybe what, uh, what is the balance, I suppose, of sort of introductory material and mm, 
what summaries of the most recent research in the field? Yeah, I, su- I suppose one would say that it foc- I think it focuses about 70% on paleography. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we tried to do is we've been editing the work. So what we did was we commissioned um, essays from the various specialists within the field. Mm-hmm. So I think that one of the strengths of the handbook, well, Obviously, I edited it, so I think there are several strengths. But um, I think one of the strengths of the handbook is the fact that it gives pretty full coverage uh, to virtually every script from late antiquity to the Renaissance. Mm. Um, And in fact, some scripts which in previous handbooks have gotten rather short shrift um, have fairly fully developed uh, essays and articles in our handbook. So Mm. I think that's one of the advantages. So I would say it's definitely really a handbook of paleography. the section on codicology covers the uh, sort of major uh, areas and aspects, um, like you know, how was a, a manuscript actually um, set up? Um, how does one, uh, what can one learn about things like comparative codicology? Uh, those sorts of aspects. But I, w- I would say that it's probably not intended to replace the uh, Cornell volume that mm. they use here in the CMRS um, course. Because um, I think that uh, particular volume focuses, I would say, prim- well, primarily on codicology as opposed to paleography. And then there's a, fair, as I say, a fairly developed section at the end where we treat things like uh, libraries, um, mm-hmm. particular um, scriptoria that were important to the development of script. Um, we treat various genres. So we have a section on theological texts. We have a section on books of hours, we, um, uh, those sorts of things. So how, how long did it end up being? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about 700 pages in total. So it's a, it's a pretty long volume. And I must say, I think one of the other strengths of the volume is the fact that it is copiously illustrated. Mm. Um, so there must be, oh, I shudder to think, there must be like a thousand there oh. might be like a thousand plates and figures and um, things which illustrate uh, various aspects of script. So, is this something you would uh, you would envision yourself <laughs> using in your own paleography class? Mm. Um, yes, I would. the The difficulty is that these handbooks, even though they come out as paperbacks, I think Oxford is still is still pricing them at about a hundred dollars. Oh, right. Yeah. So it might you know it might be a slight problem in terms of uh, using it within a class, I'm not sure. We, we hadn't we hadn't really originally envisaged it just as a textbook. Mm-hmm. We had envisaged it as a kind of um, supplement uh, to textbooks on paleography, like mm-hmm. Bischoff's and uh, Steno's. And one of the reasons for undertaking it, I think, was the fact that, and I don't know if you've ever worked with Bischoff, but. Bischoff was a brilliant paleographer, mm-hmm. um, but the problem is that it's been translated from German, right. and uh, it, it's a little bit difficult uh, to follow and read in the English translation. Mm. And one of the problems I discovered was that apparently they didn't get um, the rights for some of the illustrations in the English translation copy. Uh-huh. So it's they virtually talk about script without any uh, illustrations. So I think um, you know our handbook will a update uh, the research since Bischoff, which was published about eighty eighty two, and as I said, it's, it's fully illustrated. Um, the other thing is, of course, that Oxford made us do all of the articles in English. 
Ah. So even though we must have had about um, 18 to 19 articles in German and Spanish and French and Italian, they all had to be translated. Do you find that to be a strength or? Um, well, some and some. Maybe. Well, you know, I hate to say this, but I do think that if something is not published in English these days, it will not be as widely read. Mm-hmm. Um, um, is it a strength? Well, the difficulty really is the fact that some foreign languages, as you know, work quite differently from English. Mm-hmm. So some of the essays were quite, <laughs> quite metaphorical mm-hmm. in terms of the way they talked about script. And part of the problem was finding a kind of um, language uh, that worked better in English. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we did have to go a little bit around with contributors. Did the authors generally, or the contributors, generally translate their own, or did you have to do uh, that? We translated them. So I did most of the French. And here I must say that I did not do this um, on my own. I have a co-editor who's Robert Babcock. Mm. Um, And he was responsible for the uh, German. And then Consuelo Duchki, mm-hmm. uh, who is at uh, Columbia University, did most of the Italian ones. Yeah. So it worked out fairly well. Um, <coughs> but as I say, the as I think the strength is that the fact that all of this is published in English will certainly make it more accessible. So what are some of your, if you can say, some of your favorite parts or maybe parts uh, you'd like to highlight? Um, well, I... I guess I'm I'm rather fond of the fact that all of the scripts are given quite uh, close coverage mm-hmm. and quite detailed coverage. So I th- one of the things that I particularly liked about it was that some of the scripts, which, as I said, are sometimes given a half a page mm-hmm. or a page in traditional manuals, are here really quite fully treated. Um, I'm thinking of scripts like Old Roman Cursive mm-hmm. and New Roman Cursive. Um, which are usually mentioned in passing. Those are terribly difficult to they read, are, aren't they? They're extremely difficult to read. And I have to say there are very few people in the world who can talk intelligently about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say that we were very fortunate to get Teresa de Robertis, uh, mm-hmm. who was at Florence, um, who wrote really two wonderful articles on the script, and I think that the two scripts, and I think they'll probably be the go-to article. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the other thing that... Um, I thought was particularly good was the fact that a few other scripts, which I say are generally either not taught or um, don't have very full coverage, were also treated like Visigothic. Mm -hmm. We have an extremely comprehensive overview of Visigothic. Um, I suppose one of the things I I might also say, thing that I particularly liked was that um, it was quite heartwarming, I suppose one could say, to work with some of these contributors Mm. uh, and to see how enthusiastic they were about their own particular script. Uh, And since I'm, um, you know, my expertise lies a little bit more in um, Carolingian and Gothic, Mm -hmm. um, it was certainly um, a very good learning experience for me. Did you contribute? Uh, Uh, Yeah, I contributed a couple of smaller articles. Um, I did the introduction and I did the article on punctuation. Um, Mm -hmm. But I didn't, uh, one of the things I guess we were trying to do that we we tried to find probably the person who was the um, the person who was the expert mm-hmm. uh, within that particular script. Um, so to just you know drop a few names, we had um, Francis Newton on Benevent, and mm-hmm. we have Albert de Relay on um, mm-hmm. Gothic. Um, and again, Teresa de Robertis did a very good article on humanistic script. 
Um, David uh, Gantz did mm-hmm. Carolingian. Um, so I think they're they're all quite authoritative articles. Yeah, really an all star. Yeah, all star yeah. cast. Um, I suppose one of the things that was that was interesting as well was to see the sometimes slightly different perspective that people have um, on paleography as a discipline mm. and the way one looks at a script. What uh, are some of particular, the... Um, well, sometimes people can can be much more categorical ah. in that they're interested in looking at very specific letter shapes mm-hmm. and classifications. Sometimes people are much more interested in looking at the sort of more calligraphical aspects hmm. uh, of the script and the fact that for them, writing is a kind of human hmm. experience. So sort uh, of a script for script's yeah, sake. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Um, and I would say some of the Italian contributors um, had much more of that kind of hmm. perspective. That's a delightful attitude. Yeah. Um, but again, I suppose I would say the the strength the strength of the book really is that most of the articles um, follow um, a certain setup, and usually uh, you're kind of taken through the script, mm-hmm. um, and so you're shown what are the major features, what um, are the things that are p- the particular shibboleths uh, of the script, um, and then most of the contributors actually have a couple of examples mm. uh, of the script where they actually take you through and show you what are the distinguishing features within that particular example, and then they actually transcribe a, a certain piece. So in some uh, um, in some respects, it can be used as a kind of learning tool. Yeah, it sounds like well you could almost do self, yeah. self-study. Uh, yeah. Maybe if you've had a paleography course, say, and forgotten, <laughs> <laughs> forgotten things, or if your expertise lies the, in one script. I mean, the real. I have to say the real difficulty um, I have now when I'm teaching paleography is that I'm not sure there's a, a really good manual out there for paleography as such. Mm. I think the Cornell manual is excellent from the point of view of book history and the mm-hmm. archaeology of the book and codicology, and, um, but it doesn't really give a full treatment um, of all of the scripts. And, um, and Steno, of course, is extremely good, but it's in French. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I'm a little bit stymied sometimes in trying to find a text that is appropriate. Mm. Um, so, of course, I, I'm not sure I can assign uh, the handbook at, 100, <laughs> at $100, but um, I think I will probably use it. The, and I might say the intent is we were adamant about this. We wanted it brought out in a hard copy mm. initially. But I think the intent is that it will eventually go online oh, okay. so that it can be consulted. Uh, as individual chapters. I didn't realize that was a choice for the individual handbooks. So they're not all, if the library subscribes, they're not all necessarily <coughs> online unless... No, I don't think they are okay. online. Um, I think our editor felt that um, our book was such that it could probably benefit mm-hmm. from being online. I'm old enough that I'm a little bit concerned about things just being online. I want to make sure there's an actual hard copy yes. which exists in libraries. Um, and I, I suppose one of the, at least for me, one of the other great problems was just the difficulty of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, because there were so many figures and so many illustrations. Um, and as someone who did their dissertation on an IBM typewriter, <laughs> um, I'm not sure I realized all of the, 
problems that can uh, yes. come up with. Uh, I was kind of just with layout and yeah, yeah getting the illustrations. Yeah, in. getting the illustrations in and um, and also uh, setting it up so that the uh, people who are actually doing the copy editing can mm. follow. Um, I mean, one of the things that was particularly perplexing for me was that apparently we had to have four copies of each of the articles so that one just had the text, one had hmm. uh, just the illustrations, one had text and illustrations, and one was a PDF. Hmm. Um, so it required a, a fair amount of technological expertise. Um, hmm. I kind of relied upon the kindnesses of my graduate students. <laughs> Is there a section in the book on... Speaking of technology, sort of mm -hmm. digital humanities and all that? Um, there is a, a smaller section dealing with the question of um, projects that are being used to digitize mm -hmm. um, manuscripts. But, and this may reflect the biases of the people <laughs> who were editing the volume. Um, but no, I would say that um, there, pro there probably is not a large, um, a large mm -hmm. section devoted uh, to that type of work. Well, it, it tends, it, for the most part, it tends to be a fairly um, rigorous, conservative, mm -hmm. a little bit old school kind of approach to paleography. No, I was curious what you thought about all that because well, it seems like. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm very. I mean, I'm very much in favor of it. Mm -hmm. um, the the thing that the thing that I'm very glad to see is that people are actually digitizing complete manuscripts. Mm -hmm. um, I think it, in part. Before, they would only digitize things that were quite beautiful or had oh. lots of nice pictures, um, and they might only digitize parts of it. Um, so I notice now, well, I've been working a lot with the Vatican mm -hmm. um, website, and one of the things they're doing is I think they're attempting to get most of the manuscripts digitized. Mm. So I might here just say that I started my own work um, on Ovid working on a particular commentary, mm -hmm. which was written in France, and I had to start working from it from a microfilm. Mm -hmm. which was incredibly difficult. It really meant actually changing, physically changing lenses so that you could blow up the mm -hmm. script to see it a bit better. Uh, and I must say that last year, the Vatican put a fully digitized uh, copy of the manuscript up, and they must have done something with the, I think it's called the pixel quality, mm -hmm. of the, so that when you blow it up, <coughs> you still have a really finely formed picture. So it's, the text doesn't disintegrate as you blow the image up. Um, and I must confess, we're editing this particular text with the research team at Zurich at the moment. And I must say that having being able to work with it in a digital form has just been an incredible lifesaver. Hmm. This you, is the only copy? Um, of that? Mm -hmm. No, it's not, unfortunately. Uh. Um, Virginia Brown, who was my dear mm -hmm. supervisor when I was a your age and a graduate student, she made me go through virtually every European library <laughs> looking for copies. And when I started, there were four, and I actually found uh, 20 more copies of ah. it in European <laughs> libraries. So, um, and the question, and this is, this is um, I guess, sort of related a little bit to the, the paleography manual, but uh, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is how we're going to go about editing it. Mm. Because one of the big problems is that it's so dense and the script itself is so difficult that I think if we edit, if we try to do a traditional Lachman kind of edition, we're not going to finish before I die. Is that that's the it's like stemma? Yeah, the kind of stemmatic where, yeah. you, <coughs> where you examine all the manuscripts and mm -hmm. try to decide how they're interrelated. Um, 
But as I say, part of the problem, part of the part of the thing is that the digital reproduction has really facilitated mm-hmm. the work on that in a way that I could never have imagined mm. thirty years ago. Um, and of course, you can you know you can um, pull it off the website at any mm-hmm. time. Um, and I have actually, and the, the thing that's quite unique, and I haven't worked that much with digitized copies, but is that you can actually see, you know, every form. Mm-hmm. of the letter, whereas before when you were working from a, a microfilm copy, it was very difficult to see how things were actually um, actually written. Because mm, the level of detail wasn't yeah. high enough? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Do you worry there'll be a bias um, until, say, some future time when everything is digitized, a bias towards things that are easily accessible? Mm. That's a good question. I think at the moment digitization might be used a bit more in teaching mm. than it may be in research. Um, but I think it's moving in the direction when, uh, particularly with things like the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek mm-hmm. in Munich and the Vatican Film Library and some of the big digitization uh, projects in Switzerland and mm-hmm. France, that at a certain time, I think most of the material is going to be available. So it will be mm. a, a kind of, you'll be able to use it in research as well uh-huh. as That'll be nice. I guess a related, (laughs) or maybe this is my own experience, uh, uh, it's easy to get things that are digitized. And then I sort of haven't learned the system of getting money to be able to go sort of travel Uh, to to Europe, to be able to go look at the more obscure libraries. I I suppose the negative, one of the negative aspects of this is that as things are being digitized, it's more and more difficult in libraries to actually see the manuscript. Mm. Um, and even when only a bad, a fairly bad microfilm exists, even then when you're on spot, it's virtually impossible to actually see the manuscript. Mm-hmm. I was in um, Seville in the fall and I actually went to the library and they would only let me look at the manuscript on microfilm. Mm. Um, and I said, well, you know, thank you, I have a microfilm. <laughs> um, and Paris is quite bad in this respect, too, at the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mm. When I was your age, I used to be able to go, and I could actually work with the manuscript for a month. Mm. You would just put it on reserve each night, and it would be there the next morning. The last time I was there, even though I knew uh, one of the curators behind the scenes, I only got to look at an Ovid manuscript for about three hours in a morning, which was quite difficult to extract what I needed. Yeah. Was it was it you who had the story of, I think it was a Spanish library, uh, just sort of back back in the day, people just sort of smoking? And, uh... Yes, well, actually, this was at Seville. Okay. Um, I worked at Seville in 1989, mm-hmm. and yes, that's true. I walked in, there was a round table, there were four or five people. This was when you could actually see a manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were four or five people sort of, uh, of course, everybody's... Everybody smoked mm. back in the 80s, so it may not have been too abnormal, but it was quite shocking for for me. Yes, I was the one who had that story. No, so they've changed their, they've they have changed changed their, their policy. And, <laughs> and I think part of the thing is knowing people. Mm. Um, I have a good friend who's in Spain, and she said, oh, I know the curator at Seville, so I can get you mm. behind the scenes to see the manuscript. Um, yeah. It's a sort of very letters of introduction and, yeah, knowing people. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I am a little bit concerned that some of these documents are going to become inaccessible with digitization. Hmm. Um, and it, as I, it's not so bad with things like the 
Vatican because they're doing such a good job mm-hmm. with most of their scans. Uh, but with some some of the scans they put up, they're not really very well done. Mm. Sort of cropping things out by accident or yeah. not well, focused enough? Yeah, yeah, part of it is it's not focused enough. Mm. Um, and, um, of course, I do agree that there is no substitute to actually seeing physically the actual manuscript. Mm. I mean, there are certain things that you absolutely do need to um, look at from the actual physical copy. Mm, yeah, especially from the codicology. Yeah, from the codicology mm-hmm. aspect. <coughs> um, is there anything else that... You I have other questions, but if uh, not as much about the book. I was going to ask you about the, uh, the Piggy Center. If you wanted to say a little bit sure, I can for say, people listening about what, what you guys do or sure. maybe the uh, Beneventon archives. Yeah, yeah, sure. I'd like to say something about that. Um, the, it's, it's actually the full title of it is the Epigraphical and Paleographical Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually focus on epigraphy, which is writing on stone, mm-hmm. um, and then writing um, on manuscript. Um, it was actually set up about 1991, primarily due to the hard work of Stephen Tracy, mm. who was an epigrapher here who was um, quite renowned. Mm. Um, and uh, at the moment, we benefit a little bit from having an endowment, mm-hmm. uh, which helps us do uh, a certain number of things. Um, we have a, a very good collection related to classical texts. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of postdocs who come through who are um, interested in reception. Mm-hmm. So in the last few years, we've had uh, in paleography, we've had people from Spain, Italy, Switzerland, <coughs> usually um, either graduate students who are finishing or postdocs. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing um, that really helped us was that we uh, received Virginia Brown's uh, papers and her Beneventin collection, mm-hmm. which means that virtually overnight, we kind of became the set, the mm-hmm. go-to center for the study of Benevent in script. And why, um, can you tell people why, uh, well, why but, that's so important? Well, um, the Benevent in script was actually the script that was written in Italy from about 800 or so down to about 14 or 1500. It was mm-hmm. in the uh, Duchy of Benevento, which mm-hmm. is um, sort of just south of Rome. Um, and one of the reasons why it's particularly important is that, well, for classicists, is that a lot of classical texts exist only because they were preserved in a Beneventan manuscript. Mm. This is um, Monte Cassino? Yeah, yeah, particularly at Monte Cassino. Mm-hmm. Um, um, texts like Apuleius, mm-hmm. uh, Varro. Um, there is an important um, Ovid Metamorphosis manuscript mm. as well that's done in Beneventan. Um, and Virginia was probably the world's um, leading expert mm. uh, in Beneventan. Um, so she was kind enough to leave us uh, her library and all her working papers. Mm. And so I, I think for people who are working in that area, there's a tremendous amount of material that is there. Mm. Um, the other thing we do is that, uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, we sponsor this uh, conference every fall mm-hmm. um, in which, well, it's now moved more into a sort of seminar format. Uh, we had a sort of conference format for years, and then we decided we would uh, – move into a, a one-day seminar format in which we focused on um, a particular topic every mm. year. Um, so actually next year, uh, if I might anticipate this mm-hmm. year, uh, we're having Jan Zolkowski, but next year uh, we're actually doing um, 
a sort of one-day seminar on the legacy mm. of Virginia Brown ah. um, because she unfortunately died of pancreatic cancer in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of her students have gone on to do relatively important work in mm. areas. Um, and we're also hoping um, at some point our goal is to try to set up an um, endowed chair in Latin hmm. paleography at the center, which would be named for Virginia. And so we'd be moving towards that, but um, paleographers are not quite as well endowed as businessmen, so uh, <laughs> it's been a slower process than... Yes. Um, so I suppose to conclude, um, what advice uh, do you have, I suppose, for uh, doctoral students? Or what, uh-huh. what, what generally do the, maybe this is a separate question, but what generally do uh, your students or the, the postdocs that come through, what are they working on? Are they doing additions? Or? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, There are a lot of Europeans who, mm-hmm. much to my surprise, were still doing extremely traditional Mm-hmm. kind of dissertations. They were still working on things like text editions, codicology, mm-hmm. paleography. Um, I would say that probably American students are perhaps doing a bit less of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my advice, I suppose my advice to graduate students, and it may be a bit Pollyannishy, but it seems to me that I think you should do what is your passion mm-hmm. and follow it. Because uh, when I was a graduate student, people told me that I would never, you know, I would never get a job. And look where I am. And I've had a number of students who worked in what might be seen as relatively arcane mm-hmm. uh, areas. Um, and they've gone on to have um, relatively stellar careers. Mm. Um, so sometimes it's just a question of happenstance. But um, I, I will say that one of the things that concerns me a little bit is that I don't want to see paleography and those kind of disciplines um, merely be taught in uh, private, sort of mm. wealthy colleges. I think there will always, you know, there'll always be room for it at places like Princeton and Harvard. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm hoping that the tradition will be able to continue at important public. What's your sense of how many? How many paleography classes are there in the in the public uh, universities in America? Yeah. <coughs> well, I have to say, I think there are very few. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say that probably Chapel Hill and Ohio State mm-hmm. are the two places to go to now um, for paleography. Mm. Um, and here, I you know, I would um, like to at least point to the important work being done by Eric mm-hmm. in the library. He's been quite influential in uh, and Leslie Lockett mm-hmm. um, in developing. Uh, in developing the program. Um, the thing that concerns me is that I think schools that were really, really, really strong 15 or 20 years ago mm-hmm. um, have either not replaced their paleographers mm-hmm. or have let things slide a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I suppose one of the things that people may not realize is just how much out there is still in manuscript, mm-hmm. unedited, untranslated. Uh, I, I think sometimes graduate students have this impression that Everything is kind of done, so they don't really need those kind of skills any longer. That is how it feels sometimes, especially in mm. uh, especially in old English, where at least all the old English ah, texts, yeah. I think, have been 
poured over pretty well, but not the Latin. No, no, definitely the Latin tradition is. I, mean, I would say that in the in the area that I've worked on, which is primarily Ovidian reception, mm-hmm. um, I would say 98% of the material is still unedited, mm-hmm. unexamined, uncatalogued. Um, so we're really, in that area, we're kind of at the state we were at at the beginning of the 19th century mm-hmm. in classical studies where so much still had to be done in terms of editions of the text, mm-hmm. catalogs, uh, those sorts of preliminary work. Um, and I suppose here I might just mention that one of the other big projects mm-hmm. I've been working on, and it was Virginia Brown who got me onto this, but it's a, a big project looking at the medieval and humanistic uh, commentaries on the metamorphoses mm. from 400 to 1600. Um, and it's a very cautionary tale. A massive... For, well, I say it's a cautionary tale because I started it quite naively as a graduate student thinking that I might find 20 or 25 commentaries. And mm-hmm. I now have, well, it's almost finished, but I have discovered 110 <laughs> commentaries in about 700 manuscripts. Um, so it gives you at least some indication of, mm. and all, well, most, I would say 90% of these manuscripts were unknown. And just you know, just to give you one other further indication of how much important work is still out there, um, we always think that classical, all the manuscripts of classical authors have been discovered. Mm-hmm. When I was looking in various European libraries, I actually found uh, 120 new manuscripts of Ovid's Metamorphoses wow. that were not known. Um, and last fall, I just managed to find a fragment oh. at Fordham, at their university, mm-hmm. a new fragment of... Uh, Giovanni del Virgilio, oh. who is a very important Italian humanist. Hmm. Um, so I mention this because they're, um, you know, it's an exciting discipline, still yeah. lots of important primary texts still to work on. Well, thank you very much, Frank, for talking with us today. Well, That's thank you. Exciting. Thank you for listening to the Nouvelle Nouvelle podcast. Thank you, as always, to Fior Angelico, a Columbus early music group, for our theme music. Until next time.